Right. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaking. In this manner therefore pray, he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Alright. That starts us off very well for tonight where we're considering the kingdom of God and its king. And um, I probably will leave aside until next week the subject of is, is Christ reigning right now. Um, that's kind of its own little thing, but I will get round to that. But I do want to, to talk about the kingdom of God. And so we'll get that up on the board here. Now, the kingdom of God, just to be clear, is the same as the kingdom of heaven. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is used by Matthew. And uh, it used to be that some dispensationalists, including Schofield and uh, Walvoord and people like that, would say that there's a difference between a kingdom of God and a kingdom of heaven. Uh, dispensationalists have not believed that for many, many years. Okay, for several generations, apart from Walvoord. Um, but otherwise, people didn't believe that. Now, critics of dispensationalism don't seem to have read anyone past about 50 years ago. And so they're always coming up, you believe in the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Well, a lot of people didn't back then any either. But some people did. And it did cause some confusion. The kingdom of heaven is only used in Matthew's gospel. No, never anywhere else. And Matthew, in fact, three times, I think it's three times, he uses the term kingdom of God too. Um, and most people think that he's, he's using kingdom of heaven because he, his is the most Jewish of the gospels. And so it's possible, although I don't know, but it's possible that he's using the word heaven as a stand-in, as a circumlocution for God. Okay? Which, to me, indicates again that Matthew was a very early gospel. Traditionally, Matthew is the earliest gospel. It's only been since the middle of the 19th century that people have thought Mark was first. And that for evolutionary points of view, usually. Uh, I believe Matthew is the first gospel written 41, 42, around there, AD. Anyway, that would explain why, you know, he didn't want to upset Jews that were being witnessed to at, at that early time. Later on, after 70 AD, you know, that's a different point of view. I don't know if he'd be so concerned about circumlocutions after the church had already been growing for over a generation. Um, that's all somewhat speculative, but 
the point, main point is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. Uh, here, Jesus says to his disciples and says to us that this is a model of how we are to pray. Now, um, there are certain things in the prayer, it's a wonderful prayer, of course, certain things in the prayer that should be incorporated into our prayer life. But there is a priority here. That's what I want to point to you. And the priority is God first, God's kingdom second, <laughs> and that described as, in functional terms, his will being done on this earth as his will is done in heaven, which is what the kingdom is. Yes? The kingdom functions when that happens. Okay? At least to a, to a huge degree. And uh, we'll get into that. So, this means, folks, if this is the thing we're to pray for, this means that the kingdom of God is not a small subject. And it is not something that we should say, oh, that's interesting, but I'm not interested in studying that. Well, God wants you to study it. God wants you to think about it. I mean, if he didn't, he wouldn't ask you to pray about it, would he? You know? But here it is. And it's God, and it is God's kingdom. So the kingdom of God and its king is what we're uh, going to be dealing with tonight. Notice here in the prayer that if we're praying for the kingdom to come, that means the kingdom hasn't come. Okay? Now, this was said and recorded uh, before Jesus died on the cross. So has Jesus... Kingdom come now, he's died on the cross and he's raised. In other words, has Jesus in his resurrection and ascension, now is he sitting at the right hand of the Father on the throne of David in heaven and he's reigning over the church from heaven. That's what our millennialist friends want to teach us. That Jesus is reigning now. And uh, joining them in their error, I believe. It's, uh, I'm joking, but um, um, uh, progressive dispensationalists, so they do it for a different reason, but progressive dispensationalists believe there's a sense in which Christ is reigning now, even though he will reign kind of properly when he comes back, Okay, which to me sounds dumb. But they do have some reasons for that, which, which we'll get into next week. Uh, the question is do we pray this now or is this part of the Lord's Prayer is it now kind of already answered because he's already reigning I don't think he is reigning now so I think we should still be praying hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and you know the reason for that It's because Jesus describes here what the kingdom looks like. And God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven right now. Which means to me, the kingdom isn't here right now. Which means that Jesus isn't reigning right now. There's kind of an easy kind of way of thinking about it. Okay? But there are many people that believe 
that the kingdom of God is happening. I mean, this is we're in it, folks. How are you liking it? Okay, we're in it. Now, there's more, there's better stuff to come, but we're in it. And uh, some will even say we're reigning now. I'm like, whoa, you know, whoopie doo. But I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling it, okay? And I know we're to live by faith, but I'm not, I'm just not feeling it. Anyway, <clears throat> I think it will be much more real uh, than that. Sorry, I'm full of concrete dust in my <clears throat> throat. Um, okay. Notice also in verse 33 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Um, seeking the kingdom here and seeking his righteousness is said in an Old Testament sense. To seek the righteousness of God is to seek something that's ahead. Okay? To seek the kingdom of God is to seek something that's in the future. Remember, this is before the cross. They're not thinking here in Matthew 6 in ecclesiastical terms. I mean, Matthew chapter 10, he's saying, for example, uh, to the people he sends out, don't go to the lost house of the... Of the, 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 sorry, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. Only go to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. So you know he's not talking about the church there. He's 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 still very much in Jewish territory. So before that, again, he's still kind of you know in this he's in this Old Testament expectation of, and so on. And uh, those of you that took that course with me will will understand that the Gospels are full of this this expectation looking into the second coming of Christ and uh, an actual change in this. Can we say, because Jesus tells us to pray before we pray for all of our stuff, he says to pray for God's stuff and God's stuff is his kingdom, can we say therefore that the kingdom of God is the main theme of scripture? Can we say that? Now, um, I'm going to demure somewhat in that, but only with a qualification. But I will say this, that whether you are a liberal scholar, and um, uh, John Bright, his book, The Kingdom of God, uh, written in, uh, I think, 1950s and 1960s, a mainstream scholar said that the kingdom of God is, is the kind of the main theme. I mean, it, it permeates the whole of Scripture. And uh, he was not, uh, didn't view uh, the end times in the way that we do. Okay? Um, Alva McLean, another one. Many people believe that the kingdom of God is the main theme of scripture, even though uh, they would not agree with the interpretation of the end times that I'm giving. For example, there's a new book called Kingdom Through Covenant. It's a brilliant title. Wish I'd have nabbed it before they did. You know, because that's exactly what my stuff is describes. And their stuff doesn't. 
really frustrating when people do that. It's like, you know, covenant theology. It's like, hey, that's me. You know, but it's not me because somebody else has, has you know, got the title a long, long time ago. But they haven't got the biblical covenants, you know, which is really frustrating. It's like they, they, they borrow a great title and don't even get it right, you know. <laughs> but yeah, Kingdom Through Covenant, um, Gentry and Wellham. Um, their view is that the covenants are really important and that you can follow the flow of the kingdom and the kingdom program by f- charting the covenants of the Bible. It's like, that's great. That's what I've been saying. And yet, how do they interpret it? There are millennialists. So how do our millennialists interpret prophecy? Through the first coming of Christ, not the second coming of Christ. And because they interpret it through the first coming of Christ, the kingdom comes at the first coming of Christ. Can you see? And if the kingdom comes at the first coming of Christ, then Christ is reigning now. And what about all of those prophecies in the Old Testament? You spiritualize them and apply them for the church, or the good ones anyway. The bad ones the Jews can keep. Okay? The curses, okay? But the blessings go to the church, which is the new Israel. So again, you know, it's unfortunate that they, they have that. They've even got this, this, uh, they, they call their view progressive covenantalism. Progressive covenantalism. And, uh, whenever you see that word progressive, you know, usually it means something stinks in Denmark. Okay, not all the time, but usually, okay, because what they mean by progressive there is not just that the program moves forward, okay, there's a trajectory to it that progresses, they mean that it, uh, the interpretation progresses too, <laughs> Okay, so what's progressive about it also is the fact that what was said uh, over here in the Old Testament might not actually be fulfilled in that way over here. That's progression. No, that isn't progression, folks. Okay, okay, that's just an alteration. I mean, let's call it what it is. It's it's an alteration. It's not progression. Uh, and the same when you when you uh, here are millennialists and uh, even even premillennialists very often historic premills they will talk about progressive revelation and they'll say it in such a way that you think something important's going on something great's going on and then you find out that they don't when they say progressive revelation they talk about they're talking about something that that doesn't progress and doesn't reveal Okay, there's no progress, there's, a, there's an alteration. Okay? And it doesn't reveal until you know the alteration. You see? Because you can't, down back, the stuff back here doesn't reveal anything. Okay? Because why? Because it has to be spiritualized and changed to reveal something different. So the revelation isn't progressive either. It's like, um, you know, all along there's this, uh, we're going along like this. And we think that we're on a progression, okay? So there's progress going on, and there's an expectation going on, okay? And then here's Christ, and he's going back up, and all of a sudden, uh, it's like, 
duh, what's going on, you know? Because, ah, folks, we're on a different track now, okay? And the expectation has changed, okay? It's not what was expected. And folks, they even say that. You know, G.K. Beale and uh, Graham Goldsworthy, people like that, will outright tell you in their books that the fulfillment was not what was expected. Well, then it wasn't, there was no progress going on, was there? It was all going into a blind alley. Okay, it needed to be changed into something that did reveal. This wasn't revealing anything. Because the expectation was wrong, you know? So what was it revealing? Something that was true? Or something that was needing to be transformed and changed? And therefore was not really true. So there was no progress and no revelation. But that's, they say, progressive revelation as if, you know, something important's going on. Nothing's important going on at all. Okay? The Bible, there's a, there's a bait and switch going on. That's what's going on. Uh, I do believe in progressive revelation and I've been teaching it to you. And uh, that means that uh, God commits to what he's going to do, particularly in his covenants. And lo and behold, that's what he's going to do. And there is a progress of revelation. A great example of that is the new covenant. Um, In the new covenant, you have Jeremiah... 31, okay, which talks about Israel and Judah. Okay, being blessed, born again, and so on, being under the new covenant, not the old covenant. Okay, when? Well, now we know when that's going to happen. Okay, second coming. All right, well. Progressive Revelation, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I can't remember the verse, sorry. Um, Church. Okay. First coming. Well, just after the first coming, after his, you know, uh, resurrection and ascension. We celebrate this in uh, communion. Blood of the new covenant. Okay, that's why we're not under the law, because we're under the new covenant. But you didn't, you know, if you read here, you would think it was only for Israel. Progressive revelation is telling, telling you, not that it's not for Israel, but it's also now for the church. That's progressive revelation. Nothing's changed, because this is going to be fulfilled literally in the second coming. But this has changed, and these guys didn't know about this. What's really weird is that many dispensationalists don't know about this either, which is very frustrating, okay, because they, they're just focused on this and they, it's like they're not getting progressive revelation, okay, uh, which is very unfortunate. They nobble themselves that way. All right. And, of course, another great example are the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. Progressive revelation, give you more and more information. Yeah? At first, there's going to be a saviour, and we know he's going to reign, and, and, um, 
we know he's going to be a uh, seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and then we know that he's going to be from Judah and then we know he's going to be from Bethlehem and then we know he's going to die. Yeah? All of that stuff. We know he's going to ride into Jerusalem in a donkey. That's all progressive revelation. See, it builds on. It doesn't change. It just builds on to itself. And that's also the revelation that we know about the kingdom. Okay? Alright. So, I'm back to my question again. Is the kingdom the big thing? The big subject? Well, surely, there's one question that needs to be asked at this point. Which is, what do we mean by the kingdom? Okay? What do we mean by the kingdom? And, uh, This is the problem. Because you'll find that the definitions change depending on who you're talking to. So an amillennialist okay, will believe we're in the kingdom now, okay, this is a kingdom. Now, there's going to be new heavens and new earth, okay, which is also going to be kingdom, but we're in the kingdom now. So, is that, how do you define that? The kingdom is Christ reigning over the church in the church age, you know, between the first and second comings. That's the kingdom. You're looking around and you think, well, I have higher hopes for the kingdom. You know, quite honestly, looking at the Old Testament, you know, I don't think I would like let my little child anywhere near a bear um, or put its uh, hand down a, a snake hole and so on, yeah? I don't think that's going to happen, you know. Why? Because we're not in the kingdom. Or at least we're not in the kingdom that's described in Isaiah 11. But that's okay. It's okay. Because Isaiah 11 is not about that, if you're an amillennialist. Isaiah 11 is about you not arguing with yourself anymore. It's about you being at peace in yourself, or being at peace with God, you know. Yeah. So, in that interpretation, you're at peace with God or you're at peace with yourself, just don't try saying hi to a lion. Okay? Because it doesn't mean it literally. Whereas, you know, dumb so-and-so like me is going to think, actually, I think he means it literally. Which means I don't think that definition of the kingdom as kingdom now works for me because I don't think that's biblical but for somebody who says well that is the kingdom of God you can say oh okay that's a big theme in the Bible especially when you're spiritualizing the Bible a lot and making everything typological then you can say yeah that's the big theme of scripture can't you it's just that's not what I mean by the kingdom of God do you see um People like John Bright, who's a liberal, 
Well, was a liberal. He's not a liberal now, because he's dead. Um, so, yeah, he knows differently. But, I mean, he may have been a, a saved guy. Some of these liberals, I think, were saved. But, um, anyway. But for someone like him, who wasn't, you know, wasn't really concerned about Armel and so on, but it was probably leaned towards this side of things, Armel, Postmel. Uh, but some uh, liberal, okay, then, you know, the, the, the kingdom is like, um, you know, the sharing of um, Christ's peace. Like at Christmas. And, you know, in, in Christian virtue and the influence of the Christian worldview in the world. Yeah? Getting along with everybody and so on. Okay? How's that for the kingdom? You know, um, help people out. Social gospel stuff. And you'll bring in the kingdom. Do you see? It becomes a utopian thing. So the kingdom here is kind of Really, a utopia. It's taking, it's man taking the lessons of Christ and applying them in the world in real terms. Often kind of out of context as well. But bringing in their own utopia. Then to a post millennial, well, what's a post millennial going to do? Okay? Well, he doesn't believe the kingdoms now because he's post-mill. And he believes that the church will bring in the kingdom through the Holy Spirit. Yeah? Because they believe, post-mills believe, that the world will be converted to Christ. And that then there'll be a long time of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. The church will be the kingdom. So it's not the same as our mills who believe it's uh, kingdoms now. Okay, it's like you know, and this isn't very impressive stuff, is it? I mean, it's not even as impressive as this. But this is pretty impressive. It's like you know, everyone's going to be converted. It's going to be a wonderful world. We're all going to be Christians and so on. Of course, we'll all be having church splits and excommunicating each other and so on. But, <laughs> but you know, the idea is, is kind of cool. Post, that's post-mill. Any of these? Is this rattling your cage at all? Any of this working? Is this what I've been teaching you to expect? Is this what the Bible teaches the kingdom is? No. So what do we mean by the kingdom? All right, well, uh, historic pre-mill. Let's include one of them. Uh, okay. So historic or covenant pre-mill. All right. Well, they believe the kingdom is future after the Second coming of Christ, generally. Okay? 
So, you know, I mean, that's cool. But then the church, the, the kingdom is basically the church as new Israel um, experiencing shalom on earth for a, you know maybe a thousand years maybe a bit less and then you have a new heavens and new earth after that anything I mean that's better than these I think it's a little bit more on target okay but what this isn't this is problematical isn't it because all of the kingdom pro- promises in the Old Testament are to Israel and they talk about Jerusalem if you look in Ezekiel, like from Ezekiel 32 or 34, right the way up to like 39, you have a re- continuing refrain in Ezekiel. It says, the mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel. Okay? And it's very Israel. You know, and he talks about transformation of his people, and it talks about Jerusalem, and it talks about the tabernacle. On the mountains of Israel, it talks about David reigning and so on. It's very Jewish. There's no church there at all. I mean, the, the kingdom looks to be Israel, not the church is Israel, but Israel is Israel. Yeah? So, this isn't quite right either. Do you see the problem? And then you get the interpretation of uh, Luke 17, where the kingdom is within you. There's all kinds of different interpretations of that. The kingdom is within you. What does that mean? Oh, that means that the kingdom, once you get saved, the kingdom is within you. As you know, you're a representative of the kingdom, and you're part of the kingdom in the church. Kind of fits this a little bit. So, again, what do you feel about that? Or does it mean, in the context, is it Jesus, because he's there as the king, and you accept him as who he is, and he brings about the kingdom, that's Jewish, that's Israel. Okay? So do you accept that? Alright, back to this question. The kingdom of God, if it's the great theme of scripture, which kingdom are we talking about? Which is the right definition? And of course we haven't put ours in there either, so we've got to stick ours down there. Alright, so we'll put, uh, and I, I'll put disp, disp, okay, for dispensational. But then I'm going to put BC for Biblical Covenantalism, which is what I've been teaching you, okay? Because remember, I don't go on dispensations very much, okay? They don't, they don't push the agenda at all. And sometimes they get in the way of interpretation. It's because of focusing on dispensations <laughs> instead of covenants. That's why many dispensationalists can't get the new covenant right. Okay, because I think new covenants for Israel, and that's for that dispensation, do you see? And the future dispensation. Well, they're focusing on dispensations, and no, neither of those texts are. Okay, they're covenantal texts. And once you get the covenants right, 
then you don't have a problem with the church being in the covenant, especially because Jesus is the new covenant, do you see? But the general view here, okay, is that Jesus brings in a kingdom after the second coming and there are two uh, or three, because in biblical covenantalism there are three peoples making up the kingdom. Okay, finally, anyway. And the reason for this, by the way, is that um, one of the peoples is Israel, restored. One of the peoples is the church. And then there are all kinds of promises to the nations. To the nations in the Old Testament. The nations are not the church. The nations are the nations. Okay? Some of them are even named, like Egypt and so on. They're, they're named. Okay? So, um, um, I'll, I'll show you how this works out in just a, a second. It's easier to see in um, new heavens and, in, and the new earth, but it obviously has to work in the millennium too because Israel has to function as a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. It doesn't need to function as a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations to the church because the church is made up of, of priests, spiritual priests, okay? And it doesn't have to be a light to them because we're all saved, okay? So, in the kingdom to come, there will be people who need to be saved, okay? Remember in Revelation chapter 20, Satan's locked up for a thousand years, he, he's let out, he gets an army of people. Where do you get an army of people from to come against Jerusalem, from all the unsaved people who are in the kingdom and have rebelled against Christ. Okay? And they get destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire at the end there, and then you have the new heavens and the new earth after the great white throne judgment, do you see? Uh, we'll go and we'll go back to that. So yes, we have this. Now this lines up with what you see. Okay, but it's another one. Now we're at one, two, three, four, five. And if you throw progressive dispensationalists in there, they believe that we're not in the kingdom now, but the king is reigning now. He's just going to reign better later on. Okay? I mean, more effectively. So that's progressive dispensationalism. So that's six. So, guy, and, and Robert Saucy, who's, you know, a progressive dispensationalist, he, again in his book, says the kingdom is the great theme. But he doesn't mean what I mean by the kingdom. I mean, he's got a lot of things right, but he doesn't mean what I, I mean. He doesn't mean what these guys mean. Now, for that reason, folks, I think we've got to be careful about saying that it's all about the kingdom of God because we're not really saying anything at the end of the day, are we? I mean, if we, if we say um, you know what 
Um, my uh, I'm I'm fascinated. Well, my son is is fascinated by cars. And he said, "Okay, so he's fascinated by you know the cars that we see driving." No, he's not interested in those cars. He's fascinated by little matchbox cars. No, no, he's not fascinated by those at all, no. Then he starts to think, okay, well, what does it mean my son's fascinated by cars? You know, I, I thought I meant what it, I thought I knew what he meant by that, but now it seems I don't know what he means. So if I don't know what he means, then I'm completely in the dark. I'm as in the dark as I was before he said anything. <laughs> It's the same thing with this. Do you see? It's like, again, other people, good people. Um, you ask them a hard question and they will respond, oh, yes, it's the sovereignty of God. And it's like, Okay, you ask him another question. What's the sovereignty of God? And after a while, it's like, you might as well say, it's the number 39. (laughs) In fact, you know, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm not sure what the number is, that is the 42, is the key to the whole shooting match, okay? But, you know, I think Douglas Adams was getting at something when he said that. It's like, it's meaningless. It's meaningless to say, you know, the sovereignty of God. It's also, folks, let's just face it, it's meaningless to say God to the answer to every question. You might as well say 42. You've got to put some content into it. You've got to know what you mean and you've got to be able to express what you mean. Otherwise, people are thinking, well, all right, I thought he ma- I know, I knew what he meant by God or the sovereignty of God but now it's like it means everything which means it means nothing same with this do you see you know when he started I, I knew I thought I knew what Hennebury meant but now I'm not sure what Hennebury means at all so what's the point of saying that the kingdom of God is what scripture is all about I'm completely in the dark do you see the problem That's my problem, that is my issue with saying that the kingdom of God is the main thing of scripture. You run up against this, which means you've got so much explanation, and you see that that it's hard. Now the best book um, on this subject, the best guy to have done this is is, uh, Michael Black. This book, He Will Reign Forever, which I strongly recommend that you that you buy this book. I, I did a review on this book and had very little to criticize on it. But it's a very, very good book. So Michael um, makes a case here for the kingdom of God being the main um, the main thing. So I want to read a little bit about what he says in his opening salvos here um, so that we can 
um, at least, you know, see where he's coming from. Now, on page 16, he says this. Some treatments of the kingdom of God exclude important facets. The following are examples of statements that are too narrow or incomplete. And then he gives you four. One, the kingdom is not physical, it is spiritual. Okay, well these guys are kind of that. These guys are with that. Uh, The kingdom is no longer about nations, it is about individuals. Well, the liberals and the kingdom is within you people. That would be about that. The kingdom is no longer about Israel. It's about Jesus. Well, again, that's our mills. That's post mills. That's, you know, somewhat pre, historic pre mills. Um, and the kingdom is no longer national. It is international. That's definitely our mills and also historic pre mills and post mills and so on. And he's right. But it only, all he's done here is add confusion to my list. Do you see, hasn't he? I mean, that's not what he meant to do. I'm just making him do it. But all, what, you're, what you can see is that uh, he, he admits that the kingdom by itself, without qualification, doesn't mean very much. He goes on and he says, another important issue is how the New Testament and Old Testament relate to each other. Uh, which is something I'm going to try to get around to somewhat, okay? Um, that's a kind of a big one, and I'm going to try to deal with that. Not tonight. Some claim the New Testament transforms or transcends the storyline begun in the Old Testament. Amels believe that, and uh, Postmills believe that. But this work, this book, asserts that the New Testament continues the storyline of the Old Testament prophets in a literal and straightforward manner. He's quite right. Okay, he actually believes in progressive revelation that progresses is progressive and reveals as it, as it progresses. Okay. No transforming or transcending of the Bible storyline is necessary. And he's he's absolutely quite right with that. I think he's he does a great intro. But then he uh, he continues. He says um, he quotes Graham Goldsworthy, who is an R. Mill. And Goldsworthy says, in focusing on the kingdom of God, we are really looking at a key element that gives biblical theology its coherence. End quote. Great. But trouble is, Goldsworthy doesn't mean what black means by the kingdom of God. Page 22. There are several reasons why the kingdom of God is the central and unifying theme of scripture. First, the kingdom of kingdom is a thread that runs from the first chapter of the Bible through the last. And he quotes Richard Mayhew here. I'm just going to quote it for you. With the exceptions of Leviticus, Ruth and Joel, the Old Testament explicitly includes various mentions in 36 of its 39 books. Except for Philippians, Titus, Philemon, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, the New Testament directly mentions the subject in 21 of its 27 books. All in all, 57 of the 66 biblical books, 86% include the kingdom theme. 
Well, folks, I'm sorry, but I have to strongly disagree with that. I can't find a kingdom theme in Genesis. Okay? I can't find it in Genesis. I mean, the, the word kingdom doesn't hardly crop up in Genesis. Or king. Okay? And that not till the, you know, kind of the end. So how come, as I said last week, you know, we're talking about a few thousand years of world's history covered in Genesis and it doesn't seem to be a big issue. And the covenants are, you know, a lot of the covenants are in Genesis. Now, Exodus talks about a kingdom, but he says, I'm going to make you a kingdom. Okay, They're not actually a kingdom. They're not actually a kingdom until they get into the promised land. They don't get in the promised land in, in Exodus. They don't get into the promised land until Joshua. So there's no, yeah, there's stuff about the kingdom and when you come into the promised land, blah, blah, blah. But there's not a great deal of stuff about the kingdom in the Pentateuch. There is stuff about the king in the Pentateuch, and as there is in Genesis, but, but he's not called the king very often. Deuteronomy 17, I'll you know, set up kings, but it's kind of yeah, a couple of verses and then moving on. Thanks very much. Yeah? Don't let your king multiply horses to himself. And you know, that kind of reference. It's not a big, huge thing, you know. Uh, let this book be read by the king and, and, and so on and so forth. But again, it's you can't see it's a main theme in the Pentateuch because it's not. Uh, Joshua, well, you know, there's no king in Joshua. There's no king in Judges. First king comes in, along in First Samuel and that's Saul. Are we, you know, is Israel the kingdom of God there? I don't think so. David, uh, now we're talking. Okay, but David, you know, he has a struggle and then he has failures. And um, Is that the kingdom of God? Many people like, uh, like Black and, and Alva McLean and J. Dwight Pentecost would say these are kind of instantiations of the kingdom, but they don't kind of gel, they don't work for very long. I think, well, no, they're not, actually, because the kingdom prophecies are all about, like, peace and regeneration for Israel, and, you know, I mean, the right guy on the throne. Blessing for Jerusalem. And that didn't happen during the the uh, Times of the kings. Did it? I mean, boy oh boy, it didn't. So, I, th- I think we've got a problem, you know. What Mayhew is saying, and again, it's a good article, The Kingdom of God, an introduction. Um, I think he's forcing it. He's really forcing it, you know. And the thing is, again, even though he does def- define what he means, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't mean this, he doesn't mean this, doesn't mean this, and he kind of doesn't mean this. Do you see? So, we, we, we're starting to get, again, a, a, a reductionistic view here. Um, but uh, Mike says, uh, Genesis 1 begins with God as creator, king of the universe, and God has 
Uh, man is God's image bearer who is created to rule and subdue the earth for God's purposes and glory. Yeah, I do think that the language of Genesis 1 is regal, is somewhat regal, okay? That man is made, because he has dominion over the creation, over the animals and so on, he is to rule, okay? But he's not called a king, right? He's not called a king. And Adam doesn't rule very long, folks. I mean, he has one chapter to rule, and then it, it, you know, that splutters and you know comes to a big stop, and that's it. If the kingdom is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom comes to an end in Genesis three. Even if you say that that was the kingdom, which is not much of a kingdom, is it? It's two people. Do you see? So I have a I have a problem there because we're not, you know, we're not really talking about much here. And but he he, he goes on and he says, uh, then the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation twenty two, shows God and the Lamb on the throne and God's people ruling on the new earth. Quoting Revelation twenty two verses three and five. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, that's the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the new heavens and the new earth are certainly an extension and um, perfection of the kingdom that starts when Jesus comes back. But... Uh, Satan is in prison for a thousand years according to Revelation 20 during that kingdom time and as I said there's a bunch of people that when he gets out he hires them and uh, you know, they're all ready to fight for him so it shows you that things aren't completely you know he rules with an, uh, an iron fist Jesus so that shows you that yeah that's alright to say in the new heavens and new earth but not in the kingdom that's promised very often in the Old Testament. You see, the kingdom promised in the Old Testament is is uh, very often a kingdom where people grow old and kids are playing and people marry. Yeah? So it's not the new heavens and the new earth. So if that's the main emphasis of the kingdom, or at least a major part of the kingdom, remember uh, um, Isaiah 11 that uh, the little child will put his hand in a cockatrice's den? Well, that's not... Is that the new heavens and the new earth? Are there going to be children born in the new heavens and the new earth? Maybe, but I don't know. But that's a kingdom passage. Do you see? The child's going to grow into an adult. Probably grow old. You know, a few hundred years and whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? That's really the emphasis that the kingdom is and what Mike is doing here, although I, you know, I somewhat agree with him, but he's kind of going from Genesis 1 where you've got two people, there's not much of a kingdom going on, it ends a chapter later, 
uh, or two chapters later, and he's going all the way to Revelation 22, where the kingdom's really not the thing that's being spoke about by most of the Old Testament prophets. So I don't, I can't agree with him on this. There's too many holes in it, and we've still got to deal with all of this stuff. Uh, he says, as the Bible begins, man is in the God's presence with a kingdom to reign over. And he says, see Genesis 3.8. Okay. See Genesis 3.8. Let's have a look at it. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can't see much kingdoming going on there. Okay? Can you? It's like an anti-kingdom. So I think, you know, we've got a problem. We've got a problem here with, with defining what we mean by the kingdom. And I don't think Mike so far is, is, is anywhere near defining where it needs to, you know, where it needs to be. Uh, but he gives you this uh, kingdom program on page 23 of his book. He says, uh, the kingdom theme in the five parts of the Bible storyline can be summarized. So here's the five parts. First, the kingdom is present with creation as God, the king of creation, tasks his image bearer, man, to rule and subdue his creation. Yeah, but that's not the same thing, really, as the kingdom that's promised by the prophets. And as again, if it is somewhat the same thing, then, again, it only lasts for two chapters. I mean, one chapter, really, chapter two. And then it goes kaput. You know, it just, it just gives up the ghost. Saying that God is the king of creation is just giving him a, na- a nice fancy name for being the creator. Or being God, quite honestly. God's a better name than king, isn't it? <clears throat> so, he's just God. I mean, he's the creator. You know, if you call him king, too. I mean, I mean, you can call him king, you can call him anything you want, but, but he's God. I mean, once you've called him God, that's it, isn't it? <coughs> so you're not really saying anything when you're calling him king, because he's creator. Uh, so I agree that the very act of creation with man as the pinnacle is woven into this divine plan, the, the, the plan of what I call a creation project. Okay? But I don't see a big need for bringing the idea of king and kingdom in there. Okay? It doesn't, it doesn't really mean, what does it mean at that point? Adam being king over his wife? Being king over his kids for a little bit? Yeah, it doesn't. So, second, the fall marks man's failure to rule God's creation. Both God's image bearers, humans, humans, and the creation come under the devastating effects of the fall. Well, that's correct. Uh, but that just means that 
they, fa- they fail to rule God's creation and that happens right at the beginning of the creation. And ever since that, man's been failing very well and very uh, competently ever since. So he's been failing to rule all this time. So where's the kingdom? Third, the promised plan guarantees the seed of the woman will eventually succeed over the power behind the serpent, Satan. The fall will be reversed and man will effectively rule over creation. Fine. When does that happen? No. When does the, when does the seed of the woman destroy the serpent? No. No. He doesn't destroy him. That's not... Let's not interpret Bible prophecy all at the first coming, okay? Okay, we're not our millennialists here, Karen. Um, Well, after the second coming, actually, it's after he's released. Satan is released after the thousand years and then fire comes down and then he's put into the... Yeah, right at the end of the creation project. Okay? So... I mean, kingdom theme, you know? No, that's just way off in the, in the future, you know? Fifth, with the restoration of all things, God's kingdom plan is fulfilled as Jesus successfully reigns over the earth. This kingdom merges into the perfect kingdom of the Father. Fine. That's really the only thing of the five, I think, that actually is about the kingdom, which is future. And the kingdom is like this. Yeah? But then we have to ask, is this the main theme of the scripture? Well, it's not the main theme of Genesis. It's not the main theme of the rest of the Pentateuch or of Joshua. It becomes a big theme, a main theme, in the prophets with the restoration of Israel and the blessing on the nations. But then we get into the New Testament. Is it the major theme of the New Testament? Well, it's, it's pretty major in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew and Luke. It's pretty major. Okay? But then it kind of, after, after Luke 1, oh sorry, Acts 1, it goes pretty quiet. And you get smidgens of it in Paul, but not a lot. And then, book of Revelation, it comes back again. So the, most of the New Testament, the kingdom, isn't a big theme. I'm not saying it's not there. It's not a major theme, though. I mean, it's, it's an important theme because it picks up on what's been taught in the Old Testament. But it's, is it the major theme of Scripture? I think it's absent from a great deal of Scripture, quite honestly. If you, if you really you know, deal with the texts. You don't, you know, you don't get this big picture. Uh, He says this, what do you think about this? Um, The Bible storyline shows how the kingdom created goes to the kingdom fallen, which then leads to the kingdom restored. This storyline is centered and anchored in Jesus the Messiah. I agree. But well, let's take away the word kingdom and we've got the same stuff. 
and not as much confusion because the kingdom created is paradise with two innocent human beings okay that didn't last for very long the kingdom fallen that's just the fall and there's not much of a kingdom going on okay no kingdom of God I mean you can say well God's God's the king over creation he's the king over yeah but you might as well just call him God what is what what do you mean that he's king you mean the kingdoms now no well then what why are you calling him king you see and according to the new testament Jesus is the one who's going to God is going to make king Okay, and Jesus is going to bring about these changes. Well, he hasn't done that yet. So he's not reigning yet, which means he's not king yet. So to talk about the kingdom fallen is to talk about nothing. You might as well talk about the kingdom's kaput. Okay, the kingdom's gone. After Genesis 3, the kingdom's gone. It's like... Well, let's put that to the side because now we've got a bunch of misery and thorns and thistles and disease and so on to deal with and it's not very kingdomy. And none of the kings are, you know, qualified to bring this in. So that doesn't work. And then uh, the kingdom restored. Well, that's the, that's the kingdom in the future and that's the only kingdom, really, that there's being focused on. And it's centred in Jesus the Messiah. He's quite right. He's quite right about that. And I want you to remember that. Because here's my, my view here. There is a case, not that the kingdom of God is the main theme, but the king of God is the main theme. And the king of God, which is also... needs. Just the G. The King of God brings eventually brings in the Kingdom of God. But the King of God, the Messiah, is more prominent throughout the Bible than the theme of the Kingdom of God. Do you see? <clears throat> you say, well, hold on a minute, because you said that um, you know the petition is our Father who art in heaven, you know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Okay, that's right. Thy kingdom come when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But the first petition is not about the kingdom. The first petition is about the king, or really, his kingdom, God's kingdom. Hallowed be your name. And folks, when people hallow the name of Jesus, that's when the kingdom will come. I mean, the whole earth. That's when God's, you know, the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see? So it's about the king first before it's about the kingdom. Do you see? So I think that when we start talking about the king reigning, then we can get rid of some of this stuff. Okay? We can not worry about the... Uh, creation, fall, redemption stuff, or restoration stuff, and we can just talk about the second coming and afterwards. And that, that, uh, <coughs> flow. Now, when we're talking about that flow, let me introduce something to you, which I don't think I've said yet.
Um, can I take this off? All right. Where is it? I see it. Now, in dispensationalism, generally, okay, you have um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven dispensations, okay? And what they tend to do I mean, some of they change these out, but generally there are seven. With progressive dispensationalism, there's four. Okay? But what they tend to do is that they tend to focus on the dispensations. Alright? And because they focus on the dispensations and the dispensations kind of lock you in to, to this era and then you get locked into the next era or dispensation, they tend to be static, you know? It's like you, they tend to have that... Um, influence over your thinking you don't move okay you kind of go from one box to another box now with that this one here okay is the kingdom <clears throat> and then all of these are kind of other dispensations at the moment where this one would be the church do you see yeah so we're in this one right now. So we're in this box right now. And the kingdom is future, which means that what we're doing is that we're, we're here and we're kind of just somewhat looking that way in expectation. But we're not, you know, that we're not going from here. We're starting from here. Yeah? But in uh, biblical covenantalism... Okay, I don't focus on the dispensations. What do I focus on? I focus on the covenants, okay? And what the covenants do is that they build, okay? And from the, I also talk about the creation project starts at creation and what the covenants do when they show up is that they give you an idea of the movement of the creation project yeah how it's what God's going to do and how it's going to end up and who he's going to use and so on and so forth now because excuse me because of that that the uh, we look from the, from creation all the way along do you see so our view of the end times or our view of eschatology starts at creation. Okay? It doesn't start here. It starts here, right at the beginning. And we look forward and move forward right the way through the Bible, looking at this progress. What this is called, okay, uh, this here is called, the end part, it's called an es- eschatos. Okay, or eschaton, the eschaton now, which is like the end times. Okay, so here's where we're going to end up, right? Which is the kingdom. But here, built into to this and moving forward, is sorry, 
a teleology. Okay? Which is where we get this word from, telos, which is what this ministry is called. Okay? And it's called that. Okay? There's a number of reasons, but this is one of the main reasons is because there's this teleology or this goal-centered or purpose-centered movement from the very beginning of creation. So teleology and eschatology run side by side from the beginning of creation. Okay, it's like um, um, you uh, putting out a uh, uh, you know for for your kid's birthday you put these little uh, messages out. Okay. And he has to find the messages and he reads it one message and it takes him to the next message and takes him to the next one and finally he gets his present, yes? Yeah, whatever. And, uh, and, uh, so you, you give him a starter, but you see, you've got to start at the start. But there's a forward movement, do you see? And the movement is moving towards the expectation of the goal and yet at the same time, you know that there are steps that you take. Do you see? That's what I'm describing here in the creation project. The teleology and the eschatology go together. You don't have this kind of boxed mindset which is driven by dispensations. You get the dispensations out of the way and you're driven by the covenants. That way, okay, then uh, you start to understand that the kingdom is the goal. All right? In that sense, because the kingdom is the goal and the king ruling over the kingdom is the great uh, summation, then the king and kingdom come together and you can say that is certainly worthy to be called the main theme of scripture. Okay? If you're an amillennialist, by the way, or post-millennialist, you will... You will say that the kingdom of God is, is salvation anyway. Salvation is the, be, is the big, be all and end all of everything. And so just this word salvation is slapped over everything in the elect. And, uh, that's the big thing. So that's why the cross is the, the main focus for them. And of course it's a major focus, but it's, is it the major focus of what, what God's up to? Well, not according to Jesus. Your kingdom come. You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That didn't happen after he was crucified. Um, He says, this is black again, second, the kingdom permeates Old Testament history and prophecy. In addition to the kingdom mandate of Genesis 1, 26, 28, he's calling it the kingdom mandate. It's not a kingdom mandate. It's a dominion mandate. (coughs) God assembled his chosen people Israel to become a kingdom. Exodus 19. Yeah, and they didn't. Not the kingdom he wanted anyway. Do you see? With the Abrahamic covenant, Israel was chosen to be the means of bringing blessing to the families of the earth. That's right. But they haven't done it yet. I mean, through Jesus Christ... Okay, who is sometimes identified with Israel, they've done it, but Israel as a nation haven't done it yet. 
They will do. Okay? But they haven't done it yet. So again, we can't really go to the Abrahamic covenant and say that's a big you know, there's the major theme of scripture because it's, it's just not written that way. Samuel Kings describes the rise and fall of the kingdom in Israel. What kingdom? The kingdom of, of Shalom? The kingdom of Messiah? No. It's a pretty bad kingdom actually, you know. I mean, for a lot of kings and chronicles, it's just as bad as... The, in fact, they, they say this. These kings did just as bad as the, the heathen kings around them. <coughs> yeah? Yeah, it said that about Ahab and, and uh, others. Basia. So, even though I love this book... And I respect Mike. He doesn't make a good case. He does say, on page 26, he says that the covenants are a major theme. But, um, you know, I, I think the covenants are a bigger theme than the kingdom, quite honestly. Now, it's kingdom through covenant. That, that would be true. Okay, but then he says here, what is a kingdom? Ah, okay. And then he gives you several uh, meanings for the term. Um, And then he says, uh, uh, well, he gives three elements, a ruler, a realm, and a rulership. Or the exercise of ruling. Okay? Well, if that's true, you have to have the right ruler, you have to have the right realm, and you have to have the right guy ruling. Or, or, or exercise of rule. And none of that has happened ever, ever in the history of the world. So, the kingdom, yeah, future, the future kingdom, but... It's not, it's not the main theme of, of Kings and Chronicles, for example, is it? All three elements are needed for a kingdom, including active ruling. As Pentecost points out, that's Dwight, J. Dwight Pentecost in his book, Thy Kingdom Come, which is a very good book. Essential to the word kingdom is the actual exercise of authority over a realm, uh, sorry, in a realm over which one has the sovereign right to rule. If the exercise of authority is not in view, the concept of kingdom is not present. End quote. Okay, that's true. Well, then Jesus has not exercised any rule at any time in history, therefore the kingdom isn't present. Which I think Pentecost would agree with, by the way. Thus, there can be no kingdom in the truest sense without the ruler, the realm, and the reigning function. That's all right, as long as you believe what... Black believes, but if you're Armel, you don't believe that. You believe Jesus is ruling from heaven. He's the king, he's the realm, the earth. Okay, and he's actually actively ruling over the elect. So, you know, again, you're running up into problems here. And so, do you want to know what his definition of a kingdom is? 
page 30. Thus, it is best to define the kingdom of God as the rule of God over his creation. Which does not help us out one iota from that list of six different views of the kingdom that I listed. Because they all believe that. So we're none the wiser. Now, fantastic book. You know, a great book. And, and I recommend it. Okay? I do. I just don't agree when he says that the kingdom of God is the main theme of scripture. And the reason I don't is because, what do you mean by the kingdom of God? Okay? And where is it? If it's the major theme of scripture, why don't you find it in Genesis? Why don't you really find it in the Pentateuch? Deuteronomy, you know, you find it in Numbers and Balaam's prophecies. You find it in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30. You know, Deuteronomy 17, a bit. There's a whole lot more that you find also in Deuteronomy. You don't find it in Joshua, so, you know. Where is it? King's Chronicle? No, it's not there, really. Because that's not the kingdom. In fact, that's the kingdom. It might, you might as well be, say the church is the kingdom. <clears throat> no, it's not. It's not definite enough. This is the problem. It, it just says more, it says too much. But if you say the king, then I can, I can get on board. To say that the kingdom, by the way, on this, maybe you think I'm, I'm, um, dotting my eyes too much here. But, uh, I believe that Mike contradicted himself here. Because he quoted Pentecost as saying that you needed to have, if you, you don't have the kingdom, if you don't have the exercise of the rule. But if the definition that he's given us is simply, sorry, that uh, it's the, uh, the rule of God over his creation, well, folks, you've had that since day one. So really all you're saying is God is God. So you're not saying anything, are you? You're saying 42. That's what I, I think, and I don't, I don't want to minimise the good work that's been done as an, an excellent, excellent work these guys have done, and I agree with them most of the time. It's just on this, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't buy it. We have to look elsewhere. Okay, I do agree that things, the kingdom and the king, okay, that's, that's the, where everything is moving, and theologically, I think, this is good and Mike's very good at this look uh, God had an intention okay it messed up really quick but God doesn't throw away um, things that have been spoiled he restores them and he's this was made for his glory it was made for Christ okay everything made through him and for him remember that through him and for him so, Jesus, this is made for Jesus. Jesus comes into the world and he dies in the world, rises in the world, and through the power of his resurrection, 
the world will be restored, it will be ruled by Jesus, because it's his to rule, okay, and then it will be delivered up to God, again, presented back to God, it's beautiful, okay, beautiful, and that means that the kingdom is certainly the, that consummation, isn't it, of, of our history, before you get the new heavens and the new earth, where things don't go wrong, we don't mess it up. Um, but then that fits this picture much better than this picture. And by the way, all power to him. Uh, he's a dispensationalist, but in his like 600 page book, he doesn't mention dispensations. Which tells me that you don't need them. Which is what I've been saying. Now, because he says the and now he does focus on covenants too. He puts a lot of emphasis on covenants. But he doesn't make them do what I make them do. Okay? And because of that, he doesn't have as, as much of an engine as this, this is. Okay? Because he, he's focusing more on the kingdom. And the kingdom is like, eh, you know, all of the different things I've been moaning about for the last hour. All right. We do we do we need to go? Oh no, we don't. Oh no, that's wrong. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. So we're doing okay. Uh, let's let's. Are we, are we okay with this? All right. Let's have a look at how this looks when we focus on the king. Shall we do that for a bit? Any questions so far? All right. <clears throat> All right. Where am I going to go first? Wrong. Well, no, actually I am. I'm going to go Colossians chapter 1. Okay, and verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Tell me what that means. Jehovah's Witness will tell you that he's, uh, you know, born first. In other words, he's God's first created being. That's not the biblical usage of firstborn. The right of the think of the right of the firstborn. What does that mean? He actually does define it, but yeah, it's his. He gets the whole lot. Okay, as the firstborn. So that means when God creates, He creates for the God the Father creates for the Son. It's a present. 
It's a gift. Creation is a gift from the Father to the Son, folks. Now, so if I, uh, I, I get something uh, and I put all my love into it and I give it to my son, okay? And then, not because of anything to do with uh, a fault in my son, it gets ruined. Alright? Well, I can either throw it away and say it's something I, I made. Okay? So it can't be replaced. So I can say, oh well, you know, I'll get you something else. Or I can, because it's, it's invested with my love, because it's invested by my purpose for it, because I don't, because I'm God, alright, I'm being God for a minute, because I'm God, I don't waste stuff, okay? I don't make stuff that's gonna fail. I've always know the end from the beginning, alright? So I've always got a big, wide plan and purpose involved when I'm doing this. That's why I call it creation projects, okay? So I give the creation to my son and this creation goes bad. I, okay, I'm going to do something about it. But here's, an, here's another thing. Because the son loves the father, the son, whose it is, he's going to do something about it. Do you see? So, the son dies in the world on a tree. <laughs> yes? In his own world. That's, that's an amazing thing. And rules on the world, as he should do, that's what the kingdom, that's why it's the, the summation of everything. And then, you know, gives it back to the Father in a sense, but when it's delivered up to the Father, Satan has been defeated. I'm getting ahead of myself, but but uh, he's the firstborn. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before him and all, in him all things consist. Alright, well that's pretty major. There's a big theme for you. I mean, it's all about him. Isn't that what he's saying? It's all about him. So, the him is Jesus. Alright. Genesis. Oh, actually, no. Well, okay, let's save some time. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Okay, what then what does it say? Next verse. Through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. Okay. Christological, do you see? Christological, the, and, and quoting in the beginning. 
So going, taking you deliberately back to Genesis 1. Do you see that? In Genesis 1, you have the Father, you have God, and you have the Spirit. John is saying it's done through the Son. Okay? So, we get Christology right at the beginning of creation. Alright? So, where's my black? <clears throat> so, creation... John 1, 1 to 3. And we can also put in there Hebrews 1, I think it's uh, 1 and 2. Okay? The original thing is already Christological, folks. That means it's, it's about Christ. Yeah? Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve mess it up. There's a promise made. But it's the promise, have a look in Genesis 3, the promise is actually condemnation. And it's not made to the man or the woman. It's made to the serpent. And it's it's not a promise that the serpent wants to bring about. Because it's a promise of his doom. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, I'm not going to go into all of that, okay, but the fact of the matter is, (coughs) the he, that's an individual, okay, the seed of the woman, who's going to bruise you, (coughs) okay, he's going to bruise your head, you're going to bruise his heel. Now, it hurts to have your heel bruised, but this this idea of bruising the head, it means crushing it. Okay? You can have your, your heel crushed and still be, you know, live a life. Have your head crushed and try living. You know, it's not, it's not going to be easy to live. In fact, you're not going to live. You'll be dead. <coughs> so there's Jesus. Okay? You have the fall... And you have um, Genesis 3.15 and Jesus is the seed. Okay? He's the skull-crushing seed (coughs) of the woman. Creation is Christological and this... Now, of course, we don't know if we're just reading Genesis and we've not read ahead. We don't know that this is Christ. But I'm just jumping to the fact that it is, okay? And and uh, in Romans, I think it's Romans 16, Paul kind of gives the game away because he says, and God will crush the serpent under your heel soon, okay? Through Christ, he means. And it's Christ that, it, that brings down the fire and destroys them at the end of Revelation 20. Oh, yeah? <clears throat> so... This is Christological. And then you get, um, well, all sorts. You get um, Jacob blessing his kids. Okay? That's Genesis 49. Uh, 8 till through 10, I think. Okay? On um, Judah. 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay? The scepter, that's the king's staff. Okay? But that's Genesis 49. It's right at the end of Genesis. But then that's a prophecy of a coming one, Shiloh. Okay? Until Shiloh come. And to him it will be given. Alright? Shiloh is Christ. Okay? And then you've got Balaam's prophecies. Predictions, yeah? And there are numbers 24 are the main ones. Talks about a king. Even quotes some of the uh, stuff here from Genesis 49. Talks about a king coming. I see him, but not yet. Okay? Talking about Messiah. It's a messianic prophecy. Um, we have to move on. I'm sure I'm skipping some. But uh, Moses is told, okay, about a prophet like you. Deuteronomy 18. To him will the people heed. Okay? Deuteronomy 18. Um, <clears throat> then you get into the uh, I'm going to skip a little bit here but you get into the prophets and uh, you get uh, Micah okay and Micah talks about that he's going to be born in Bethlehem we know he's going to come from Judah from this. But now he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You see? That's Micah 5. Verse 2. Isaiah comes along and says a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Isaiah, for example, says in uh, Isaiah 53, he talks about his death. Okay? It talks about the fact that, oh, it, this talks about he's a ruler who comes from everlasting as well, okay? It talks about that when he comes, he will reign in righteousness, okay, and justice. When he reigns, it says that there will be shalom on the earth. That's the, all the stuff about, uh, uh, the animals. Yeah, the world will be full of the knowledge of the earth as the waters cover the earth and so on. Um, it talks about uh, in Isaiah 61, so Isaiah 11 yeah, talks about peace. Isaiah 61 talks about that in verses 1 and 2 talks about he comes in the spirit of the Lord to do all these wonderful things and then to bring about the day of vengeance of our God. Okay? All of all this stuff that Messiah is going to do. Isaiah 9, 6, you know, the government will be on his shoulder. You've got the virgin birth there in Isaiah 7, 13, you know, so born of a virgin. I mean, where do we put all this stuff? I mean, so much of it, you know. 
all this stuff, you know, it's accruing. But notice it's about the king, but it's also about the kingdom. All right? Isaiah 49. God have put that in there. Because Isaiah 49 says he is a covenant. All right? Calls him a covenant. All right? Then uh, you got Jeremiah shows up. And Jeremiah uh, talks about him as a king of righteousness. Okay, and uh, you got Jeremiah there, I think it's 23, and Jeremiah 30. Um, one talks about the new covenant, okay, and then 33 talks about the king, 33:14. The king will reign in righteousness. You've got the same thing repeated from 23, but then given more. And it talks about David and the Levites and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's Jeremiah, the reign of the king of righteousness. Okay, so um, you've got Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel has uh, interesting things about the kingdom in 34. It says David will reign and, and he will be the shepherd over my people. And is that King David or is that a Davidic figure? You can choose. I think it's actually King David himself, but uh, it could be the, the, the Davidic figure, Christ, yes? That's perfectly possible. So, uh, you've got a shepherd of God's own choosing who comes, and um, you've also got, in Ezekiel's temple, you've got the glory... Sorry, I can do better than that. You've got the glory of... The Lord coming into the temple in Ezekiel 43 through the east gate and dwelling in the temple. Okay? Now, so that's um, Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 43 and interesting stuff there. And then you have, uh, for example, you have... Uh, Zechariah, let's stick him here, he's a bit later, but not much later. Zechariah in uh, chapter 14 says that they come to Jerusalem and they worship the king. They worship him. Okay, Zechariah 14. In Zechariah chapter 8, this king unites the priesthood and the kingship, just as in if uh, I, I know that I should have put it up there, but I didn't. But uh, the priesthood and monarchy are united in this person, okay? Who is who is Messiah? And uh, if you want to see the same thing, Psalm one hundred and ten, verses one. And four, do the same thing. Psalm 89, there's a whole bunch of messianic psalms, of course. Yeah? Which I'm skipping because I don't have room here. But there's a whole bunch of messianic psalms, too. Um, 
so anyway, and you know there's more, okay? Um, Zechariah 9, 9, he comes on a donkey and, uh, and a bunch more. But man, this is, you know, you can fill up a board with this. I'm only in the Old Testament. Okay? Yeah! I mean, it's about the king, dude. I mean, it's about the king, yes? I know there's a lot more about the worshipping of God and Israel and what they're supposed to do and then, you know, how, what, how they don't do it and other things. But this is a constant theme in the Old Testament. Now, it, it relates to the kingdom, yes, but it's, it's more about the king. Do you see? And in the New Testament, well, you try getting away from Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, when he comes in, it, he offers the kingdom, doesn't he? And then, after he's um, risen, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples said, will you at this time um, bring the, back the kingdom, to, restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But they still have the kingdom expectation in mind. But it's about you. Will you do it? Do you see? And then we get into the church. The church doesn't say anything about Jesus reigning and Jesus being the, the king. Okay, but um, if, if you're still in Colossians, it does say this, um, verse, four, uh, verse 13, He delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son, of the Son of His love. That's true, in whom we have redemption. Are we in the kingdom now? Only in a sense of we're a people of God in anticipation of the king returning. But he's not reigning now. So in a sense, we're not in the kingdom now, you know, and I think this is anticipatory, uh, what Paul is talking about here in this point. <coughs> uh, so it's about Jesus calling a people to himself and in his body right now so the kingdom process here seems to be put on on uh, uh, you know pause but then there are things indications here in the in the new testament which say that we will be with him we'll come back with him if we're going to come back with him to the kingdom then all of this is going to be fulfilled by him, but we'll be there too. So that wraps that up. But it's about—it's more about him than it is about the kingdom. Isn't it? And then when he comes back, he reigns for a thousand years. Well, there's the kingdom for you. And then he delivers it up to the Father and we have a new heavens and new earth and uh, God is the king and, and so is the Lamb. I think the theme is about the king. And it's the creation project is because creation is for Jesus. And it's about Jesus. It's the gift from the Father to the Son. It's the Son taking what has been spoiled okay, and in a love response restoring it making it because he loves the Father so he's restoring it to please the Father. And 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, Mike Black does an excellent job of this passage. If you look at uh, verse 20 through to verse 28 in fact I might uh, maybe use him a little bit here Use the index. It's quicker. <clears throat> okay, five year round, five forty six. Okay. It does it elsewhere, but I can't find it right now. Look at this. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, died. Because he's risen. He's the first one. So there's stage one, yes? For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order. There's an order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Okay? Then comes the end. Oh, okay. But wait, he does say, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Please take note of that. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power which shouldn't be ruling and having authority and having power, obviously. When does he do that? Well, in his millennial reign. For he must reign, and he isn't reigning now, he must reign till, notice that, he has put all enemies under his feet, because he rules with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. Okay, Revelation 19. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. When's that done? Revelation At the end of Revelation 20. At the end of the millennium. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, including Satan then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay. What is going on here is that the Son takes a subservient role throughout the creation. Okay. In order for him to die in the world, and even for him to reign on earth, he has to take it, in a sense, in a subservient role to God the Father. Yes? So, this is why... Um, verse 24 is so key when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and the question is when does he do that and the answer is he does that when all of this stuff 
and more is fulfilled. And he reigns. And then he delivers the gift back to the Father. As a gift back to the Father, in a sense. It's a wonderful picture, I think. Um, Mike's treatment of that is excellent. But, um, <clears throat> again, is it as much about the kingdom as it is about the king? I think it's more about the king. So, if you're looking for the main theme of scripture, what's it about? You know, I mean, give me the big, it's, it's about Jesus. But it's not about reading Jesus into every nook and cranny in the, in the Bible, even when he's not there. We've all heard sermons by people going to Nahum, or, you know, places like that, and, uh, and preaching, for example, uh, I'll give you an example of, of what, here. And I love this guy who, who's preached this message, but I was thinking, what are you doing? Uh, but it, it, it talks about, um, you know, the, the, the whirlwind and, and, and all of this sort of stuff here. And, and what he did is, is he spiritualized it all and applied it to Christ at his first coming. And it's like, that's not what it's talking about. So we don't, we don't want to say that the, the Bible's about Christ because we can spiritualize him and put him anywhere we want in the Bible. What we want to do is say, no, the whole story is about this figure. The branch. The servant. The seed. The Messiah. Same person. It's about him. And... He brings the kingdom about. But the kingdom, what is it really? The kingdom is just the restoration of the creation project, isn't it? Do you see? So that what he's doing is he's restoring the creation that God gave to him in pristine order right at the beginning. So therefore, the theme is it's about Jesus and it's about and the work is about creation creation and the restoration of all things in Christ do you say of which the kingdom is you know when he rules that's what that is okay So you see how that, that clarifies. You don't have to go our millennial. You don't have to say, well, what do you mean by the kingdom of God? Because you're just following what the Bible's saying here and you're focusing on the king and saying, oh yeah, I can put this other stuff together about the kingdom and I know that it's all about creation anyway. There's a wider aspect here which doesn't, it, it transcends us and it goes back to the Godhead, Father and Son and Spirit. You see? And it's about them and what they're doing and what their full intentions were. And us, you know, we're just the beneficiaries of that great plan. Any questions there? 
So this is why, you know, when someone says, as, um, as they often do, I think it's all about the kingdom of God, it's like, yeah, what do you mean by the kingdom of God? And there we go. You know, I spent an hour and I was, I was seeing, I was looking at in your faces and saying, you know, when is he going to stop? <laughs> because it's like, te- don't stop telling me what it's not about. Stop putting all of these questions into my head and tell me what it is about. And it's like, if we stuck on the kingdom of God theme, I can't tell you what it's about because it doesn't tell you enough. You know, different people say different things. And Mike, bless him, he's a great scholar, and uh, but he quotes... He quotes Graham Goldsworthy about the kingdom of God, but Goldsworthy doesn't believe the same thing about the kingdom of God as Mike does. So, you know, we've got, we've got uh, an equivocation going on there. Well, that's never good if we're trying to talk about something. <clears throat> so this way of talking about it, I think it narrows it down and we peg these verses to it and we see these different things and they come together and we understand if we've got this in view and so on. Ah, I see. And we see that it's a project of God and and so on. Then it comes into view and it becomes more than about the salvation of man. It becomes about, yeah, that's a great thing that happens because God so loved the world. But God also loved his son. And the son loved the father. And that's even bigger. And that's why it's about Jesus. <clears throat> Alright? So that's what I think. I was once asked by a, a Brazilian chap. Sent me an email. And he said, right, I'm asking all of these leading dispensationalists all over the world, I'm asking them what, you know, all these questions about dispensationalism. And uh, so he asked me these questions and he asked, you know, Mike also got asked and other people got asked. And I was the only one, what's it all about? And Mike said, it's the kingdom of God. You know, another said it was the kingdom of God. And, and so on. I said, it's about creation. And that's, this is what I mean. I mean, I, I, I needed to say more, but it's about creation. It's about God mending and getting glory from his original intention. Yeah? And he does it through the G- Jesus, who, of course, will be the king. All right, do we have any questions on this, or are we good for tonight? All right. So I've just got about another half an hour to talk about the kingdom of God. No, no. <laughs> I, I, um, if if these other guys were here, first of all, you have to read their book. You know, this book is six hundred pages. Um, McLean's book is as big, if not bigger. Uh, Pentecost book is uh, is all about it just lists the scriptures and it's very good very helpful on that but none of them answer that what the questions that need to be asked which is what how do you get to what you mean by the kingdom of God and it's not 
it's, it's because the concept of the kingdom being an abstract thing doesn't do it. You have to move off the abstract and move on to the the person. Okay? And then that you get, the I think, more of the coherence that you're looking for. You also get the kingdom. Okay? You get thy kingdom come. But it, we also understand thy kingdom come doesn't happen unless Jesus is the king.